Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Good morning, Crossroads family. My name is Paula McWilliams, and I'm so glad to be in your homes today. Today, Charlie has asked me to read Luke 24, 13-35 in NET. Now, that very day, two of them were on their way to the village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking to each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and debating these things, Jesus himself approached and began to accompany them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Then he said to them, What are these matters you are discussing so intently as you walk along? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened in these days? He said to them, What things? The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. They replied, A man who with his powerful deeds and words proved to be a great prophet before God and all the people, and how chief priests and rulers handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he would be the one who would redeem Israel. Not only this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Furthermore, some women of our group amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back and said they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. So he said to them, You foolish people, how slow of heart to believe all the prophets had spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the for Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things written about himself in all the scriptures. So they approached the village where they were going. He acted as though he wanted to go further, but they urged him, stay with us because it is getting toward evening and the day is almost done. So he went in to stay with them. When he had taken his place at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. At this point, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Then he vanished out of their sight. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us while he was speaking with us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? So they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them gathered together and saying, the Lord has really risen and he's appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how they recognized him when he broke the bread. So if I would have written a script for 2020, I don't think this is the one I would have gone with. I don't think any of us saw what 2020 was going to be. I've seen so many gifs and memes, and somebody can explain to me the difference between those two things, but I've seen so many about how 2020 just needs to be over, or one that stuck out was a slide with a kid, and at the end it looked like a box grater, and so you start going down, and you're like, we know, you know? I don't think anybody understood what was going to happen, and 
from even February to now, from even April to May, it seems like the only certain things we have to hold on to is uncertainty itself. With things opening and, and the virus spreading and then not spreading and then spreading again, we just don't know what tomorrow holds. We literally don't. And so it seems like the only certainty we have is uncertainty. And in those moments, what do we do? We just heard the story we're going to be in this morning in um, Luke's Gospel in chapter 24 of, of two people walking down a road. And in the middle of them walking, verse 14 and 15, it says, while they were talking to one another about these things that had happened, they were debating these things, it actually says in verse 15. So they were walking down a road, it's about a seven-mile walk, and they're debating these things. These things are what happened that day. It's Resurrection Sunday to them, except they hadn't seen Jesus resurrected yet. They were disciples of Jesus, and they're walking, and they're trying to figure out, this isn't the script I wrote, what's happening, because I'm in the messy middle, and I just don't understand how this is going to end. That's our story today. It's all about what we do in situations when we don't understand what's going on, we don't have control over the future, and the only certainty we have feels like uncertainty. We're in this series on the presence of God. How the presence of God transforms the people of God and our present. And we've looked at, at Mary and how the presence of God literally brings um, our grief into joy as it fills out our perspective. And we've talked about Peter and how it leads from dependence or from independence into dependence on the presence of God. And last week we talked about how the presence of God and what Jesus does in our life is he takes our failures and mistakes into markers of his faithfulness because he loves us anyway. And today we're talking about two people walking down a road to Emmaus. It reminds me of a quote we used a couple weeks ago from the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard. He said, life has to be lived forward but can only be understood backward. <laughs> I feel like we're looking forward into life and I just want to get to the end so I can look backward and understand what was happening when it was happening. So today we're going to be in a story in Luke 24. We're going to look at these two men as Jesus shows up in that moment. But before we get there, every Sunday at CBC, when we do worship services and whatever day or time you're watching this at um, right now, we, we take some time before we dive in and just pray it out. And we pray it out because we believe that God has you watching this for a reason and a purpose. We believe the presence of God is with us now and the Spirit of God will show us the character of God as we open the Scripture. And so we got to get our hearts right. And all that means is we, we pray so that we can remove the consumer culture from our conscience and we can hear the word of God and not be critics, but be participators in the formation of the people. We might look more like Jesus because the Spirit's working. It's a beautiful thing. And so we're just going to take a minute and we're going to pray that God does a work in us today, that the Holy Spirit um, shapes our spirit into more of the ways and rhythms of Jesus as we look at this story uh, about the two people on the way to Emmaus. So take a couple of seconds now and pray with the people in your room or just pray by yourself and ask the Holy Spirit to teach you something today because the presence of God is with us.
Okay, so let's give a little context to know where we're at in our story. This is right after the first resurrection appearance, right after the empty tomb and grave, and, and these guys didn't see Jesus yet. And so all of their hope built up. Jesus died, and according to them, at this point, he didn't come back. And so they start this seven-mile journey to Emmaus from Jerusalem. And they just start talking around, talking about, kicking around, what does this mean? I don't understand because this is not how I thought this story was going to end. So they're, they're emotionally debating. That's what the text means there. They're emotionally, passionately talking about what this could all mean and what's next for them. In this moment, in this moment, Jesus meets them. And like our other stories with Mary and with Peter a couple times, like our other stories, what we see is Jesus meets us right in the middle of our need. And that can never be overlooked. It can never be overlooked that Jesus meets us right in the middle of our pain spots, right in the middle of our mistakes, right in the middle of our despair, right in the middle of our grief, right in the middle of our joys. So Jesus meets them there, and it starts like this in um, verse 15 and 16. Jesus himself approached and began to accompany them, but their eyes kept from recognizing him. (laughs) That seems to be a theme in these appearances that we've been talking about, is Jesus shows up, but people don't recognize that Jesus is there. There's been a lot written and debated on uh, about why they don't recognize Jesus. In our story here, some writers believe that they didn't recognize him because the sun was in their eyes. I think that's a cheap out, by the way. I don't think that's what's happening at all. You see Mary in her narrative in John 20 that we did a couple weeks ago. She didn't recognize Jesus, and and I personally think it's because resurrection was the farthest thing from her mind, and and she was full-on ugly crying and probably couldn't see anything in front of her face. Peter didn't recognize Jesus because I think he was a long ways away on the seashore, but this text is a little different. And for different people, there are reasons why they think that Jesus was unrecognizable at first. And they range from, you know, he got beat up pretty badly, and so maybe they didn't recognize him in his beaten state. And my my personal favorite that I actually believe with a lot of these is that Jesus is in a resurrected body, and nobody'd seen one of those before. And so I think we're going to have resurrected bodies, and it's going to look a little different. I can't promise you a six-pack, but I can promise you that it'll be a little different. And so sometimes you've got to do a double-take to recognize the person you saw before, even though it is recognizable. But this text is a little different. When it says in verse 16, but their eyes kept from recognizing him, what we see there in the original language is, is something called, what church fathers called and theologians called, the divine passive. And what that means when we call something the divine passive It's a passive verb used um, without attribution to show that God was active. Literally, the word there, when it says that they couldn't recognize or they were prevented from seeing, is a word meaning to control or to restrain or to hold. And so what you're seeing here is, is literally the divine passive, meaning that even though it doesn't attribute action to God, he is acting here. We see it throughout the New Testament. So Matthew 5 is a great example. The Beatitudes. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The divine passive there would be by God. You see it in Luke 12, 7, why even the hairs of your head are all numbered. We tell that to our kids, right? It's a good comforting line. Who are they numbered by? Not mom and dad. They love you, have a lot of patience for you. Not that much. They're numbered by God. And we see the examples of sometimes God not just acting in a divine passive way that we don't need to attribute when we write about it, but sometimes we see God actually limiting the understanding of his people. 
And, and that's what's happening here. I think God is closing the eyes of his people to the existence of Jesus walking with them down the road. And, and let's get into why a little bit, because I think it's important. So a couple of the times we see it happen in, in Luke, um, in chapter 9 and chapter 18, is when Jesus is talking about his fate of the cross. When Jesus is talking about dying, <laughs> there's a longer version of this in verses 31 of chapter 18. It says, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. And they're thinking, yes, at this point. But then 32 happens. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They'll flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he'll rise. And then it says in verse 44, 34, the disciples did not understand any of it. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they didn't know what he was talking about. That happens a couple different times in Luke, every time he predicts his death. So let me talk about why I think it's happening here. First of all, I think the reason why sometimes God limits understanding is because not knowing everything is a grace, not a curse. Not knowing everything sometimes is what we need to keep going and to keep moving on. We, we do it with our kids all the time, right? You let them hold on to fairy tales. You let them hold on to the innocence of life, even though life isn't all that innocent all the time. Even amidst the coronavirus, I'm guessing you're not showing them pictures of people and what happens with the virus because we love our kids. You speak to them on levels they can comprehend, understand, and then ultimately process so sometimes when God limits our understanding, I think he's doing it because he knows that's what we need to keep moving forward. It is a grace. Because if he would have looked at the disciples in Luke 9 and said, I am your redeemer, I am going to deliver you, but I'm going to die, they probably would have bolted right then and there. Because they didn't understand how that could, those two things could be true. So I think he's saying it. And so afterwards, then they come back to that and they meet, they realized and have confidence in the Jesus who said it, but in the moment they didn't understand it because I don't think they could process it. I think too, you might be somebody that says, I can, you know, this is my Jack Nicholas, you know, few good men moment. You know, you can't handle the truth, right? Um, but I think sometimes we believe we can handle all the truth and I just think that's arrogance. We're not God. We can't handle all the truth that's out there. So I think sometimes God lets us handle what we can, and I don't think that's a curse. I think that's a grace. We do it to the ones we love. Two, and the second reason why I think sometimes God limits the knowledge of things is because um, over and over in the scriptures, God's relationships with his creation is one of dependence. God's relationship with his creation is one that says we need our creator. And we fight so hard. We fight so hard against the idea of dependence. We really, really want autonomy. But the scriptures scream at us that we are a dependent creation, dependent upon our creator. We, we just got done. In January, when the world was normal, we just got done with a series on the Sabbath. And a big part of that series was Sabbath arrest is important. And God built rest into the rhythm of our lives because it reminds us that we're dependent. It shows us that we're not God, even though we want to believe we are, and it allows us to remember that God works even when we're not. It reminds us of our dependent and dependence, and that's the pattern of how we live with our Creator throughout the entire Bible, especially in the Old Testament. 
You can go to Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and look at the wanderings of the people. And God led them every single day by fire and by clouds. He led them day by day by day. They collected food daily and they couldn't take more food than they needed because God said, you will depend on me every single day because it's how I created the world to work. And here's why I love that. Because when we talk about dependence, dependence develops intimacy. And intimacy is deepened where trust is depended upon. So I think why sometimes God doesn't tell us everything at one moment is because he knows that we need to depend on him. And as we learn to depend on him more, we become in a more intimate relationship with our God, with our creator, with our father who loves us. And you see that. You see that with moms that nurse young kids. You see that with any kind of frontline job, whether it be military or whether it be nurses right now or whether it be um, firefighters or cops. It's called a brotherhood or sisterhood for, for a reason because they have to depend on one another. And when you have to depend on people, intimacy grows over time as you depend more and more and more. And so when we see... God not tell us all the things all the time. I think it's a grace, and I think it's so that we might know that we depend on God. So these two, two people are walking down the road. Jesus shows up. They don't recognize it's Jesus because he's about to tell them something they needed to hear. And if it would have been made clear that it was Jesus, I don't think they would have heard anything. You know, it's those moments when you're overwhelmed with joy. The next seven things aren't even remembered. I I remember the best example is anybody's wedding day for the most part. If you can remember what the pastor said to you, you, my man or or woman, you get a gold star because I cannot remember anything that was said on my wedding day. I remember I was up there. I was really happy and I was thinking this is for real, right? And everything beyond that's kind of a blur. I think if Jesus would have shown up and said, guys, I'm here, what he's going to teach them next, which is of the utmost importance, would have been forgotten. And so after you see Jesus show up, he said to them in verse 17, what are these matters you're discussing so intently as you walk along? And they stood still looking sad. One writer said that it's like the the disciples at this moment are unemployed disciples, or one writer puts it, they're walking home from a funeral. It says in verse 18 and 19, then one of them, Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened in these days? He said to them, what things? The things concerning Jesus the Nazarene. Obviously, this is dripping with irony, because Jesus is there, and of course he knows what happened to Jesus, but they're, distray- they're dismayed and they're distraught, and they didn't understand how this person didn't know what they were talking about. And it continues in verse 21, when he talks about it, he kind of lays out what happened to Jesus, like Jesus didn't know. And in verse 21, they said, but we, those disciples, these two disciples, had hoped that he was one of the ones going to redeem Israel. So these two people, one of them, Clopas, was some of the early church fathers say that he was Jesus' uncle, um, and he became to be a leader in the church in Jerusalem. We don't know who the other person is. We know they're both disciples, not in the inner 12, but other followers of Jesus that were outside of the inner group of 12. And it says that they had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, but he didn't. That's why it's past tense. One writer says, even if Jesus' star had risen higher than his predecessors, his death by crucifixion made his demise the more bitter and final. So he catches them in this moment 
where they're disappointed, where they're dismayed, and where they don't know what's going on, because it's not the story they would have written. And he says, what's going on? And they lay it out for him. They say, this is what's going on, and I'm dismayed about it. And Jesus' response is one of my favorite things in this text. You'd expect in this moment, literally every week we've had kind of a twist of responses or a surprise response from Jesus. And this one isn't, hey guys, it's going to be okay. This one isn't, hey, I promise it'll be all right. You just keep going. This one isn't, hey guys, peekaboo, I'm here. This is not any of those things. What he says in verse 25, when they lay out their hearts of disappointment, is you foolish people, right? That seems like it's a really cold response to a hurting people. He says, you foolish people, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. So that, that word foolish, literally, it, it's a little colder in the English language. In the Greek, it means um, just without intelligence or um, kind of dull, if you will. So he's saying that basically they're not thinking about the emotions that are driving their disappointment. A fool in the Old Testament is a person that doesn't allow the scriptures to or the ways of God to influence his life. You, you see it in the book of Proverbs in the first chapter. It says, How long will you who are simple love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? Knowledge being the ways of God or the law. In, in chapter 12, Proverbs says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. So Jesus looks at these, these two people that's disappointed and they lay out their disappointment and he says, You, you have missed it. You, you've missed everything that's been written about. So how are they foolish? Look at verse 26. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? They completely overlooked the prophecies about the Messiah having to suffer, and they focused on the prophecies that predicted his glorification. And there's a major theme in the Old Testament and New Testament that, that suffering precedes glory, because we live in a broken world. <laughs> From Adam on, suffering precedes glory. You can extrapolate that out into Jesus coming back. We live in a time of suffering now that won't last forever. It's our hope as followers of Jesus that he's fixing, repairing, and reconciling the broken world. And as we live out the ways of Jesus, we get to show people what that looks like day in and day out. But in the first century world, in pre-Christian Judaism, there was not even a notion of a suffering Messiah. There wasn't, a, because Rome was in control and power was the best thing you could have and they were going to restore the land and they were going to restore the authority of, of the Israelite people over Rome and dominate again like David did. So there wasn't even a category or a notion for a suffering Messiah. It was completely unknown. It was, in some ways, a juxtaposition they never even thought about. Like, well, I don't know, just a couple of those for us. It'd be like at fried ice or uh, a rainy August, if you will, if you're from Texas, or Dallas Cowboys Super Bowl champions. <laughs> you get what I'm saying there? That's a cheap shot, but, you know, I need my sports, guys. I really, really do. Um, you have all of these things that, that seemingly are complete opposite, that Jesus is saying, you've missed. You've focused on the glory, not the suffering. And so he said, wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things to enter his glory? N.T. Wright, the theologian, says it like this. They, like everybody else in Israel, had been reading the Bible through the wrong end of the telescope. They'd been seeing it as a long story of how God would redeem Israel from suffering, but it instead was the story of how God would redeem Israel through suffering. It's the constant theme we see in the Bible that suffering precedes glory. It doesn't mean that something went wrong. It means that something will be made right. Even God himself didn't escape it. And so 
really what we see in this text is something we talked about a few weeks ago, but what, what they don't see is a resurrected Jesus because they saw a suffering Jesus. And it comes down to this idea or principle that we don't believe necessarily, we don't believe what we see, we see what we already believe, and that's what they were doing. They were seeing what they already believed, and what Jesus is about to do next is transform what they believed as he walks them through the scriptures in a way they hadn't seen before. Look at verse 27. This is kind of the climactic verse of our narrative. It says, Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them these things written about himself in all the scriptures. When, when it says Moses and all the prophets, Moses is, um, has been attributed with writing the first five books of the Bible. And then you have the prophets and the writings. He's saying the Old Testament here. But all the scriptures... And the, the word there in the Greek, when it says explain the scriptures, is, is where we get our word hermeneutics. If you don't know what the word hermeneutics mean, it's just the art of interpreting the Bible, or really anything written at that point. And so what he's saying there is what he did was he unpacked the truth of the scriptures. He interpreted the scriptures for them because they missed what the scripture was telling them. And so we have to understand, I could spend months talking about the different ways that Jesus fulfills or, or makes clear the Old Testament. But, but Jesus actually used the Old Testament over and over again in his teachings. We have direct quotes from Jesus, direct quotes of 75 Old Testament passages. He loved different books of the Bible. I, I looked it up this week because I was curious. His, his go-to books of the Bible, he quoted Exodus directly seven times, Isaiah eight times, Deuteronomy 10 times, Psalm 11 times, those aren't references. Those are direct quotes that we have from the Gospels of him teaching Jesus loved the Old Testament because he came to fulfill the Old Testament. All of it points to Jesus. One writer said the Old Testament is extraordinarily Jesus-shaped. I love that idea. And, and so what I want to take a couple minutes on do is talk through where we see a couple examples of that. And, and again, this is by no means exhaustive. But what we see as we look at this text is that all of the Old Testament pointed to the truth of Jesus, pointed to the resurrection. And these guys didn't get it. They, they knew the Old Testament text, but they didn't understand that it was completed through Jesus. So now that they see Jesus, they look backward at the Old Testament like Kierkegaard told us, and they find out what, what, what it was supposed to tell them in the first place. And we see it over and over and over again. Let me give you a couple of my favorites. One comes directly from a series we just did on Leviticus. Um, and, and because we were in a series on Leviticus, God gave a pandemic to end that madness. So we stopped the series getting on, on Leviticus. But we, we kind of tracked through the idea of sin and sacrifice. And from Genesis 3, the initial sin on, sin costs something. And, and we talked about Leviticus being a really interesting book. And the whole thing, the whole book of Leviticus starts by God saying, in the tent of meeting where he wanted to be with his people, he said, hey, Moses, and he called to Moses from outside the tent. And the entire book of Leviticus deals with intimacy of God from a sinful people. And so he creates this system of sacrifice. So then at Numbers, in the first chapter, in the first verse, which directly follows Leviticus, he says to Moses, in the tent of meeting, they're meeting together again. It deals with how we as sinful people relate to God, a non-sinful being. And so Leviticus is all about the atonement of sin. That's why the main part of that book, the, 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 the headlining chapters are 16 and 17, where it talks about the day of atonement. And so we talked about sin and sacrifice, and for thousands of years they sacrificed animals, and Jesus comes along, and he says all of that the whole entire time pointed to me. You see it in Hebrews, it says in chapter 10, 
The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. In verse 19 of the same chapter, he says, We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body. We, here we see the image of Jesus, Jesus' flesh being torn for us. Again, we talked about on Easter Sunday, but the holy place they were restricted access from where the presence of God dwelt was made accessible to the people of God because of the work of Jesus. And so what we see as we read through the Old Testament even though you might not understand when you lived in that moment, why lambs and why birds and why goats and why oxen, because it always was going to point to Jesus all the time, even if they couldn't see it then. So Jesus unlocks what the Old Testament meant in the parts that we didn't or couldn't or they didn't or couldn't understand. Another one of my favorites is Abraham. <laughs> so Abraham is a central figure, the father of all these people. And in in Genesis 12, if you go to verse 3, it says, I'm going to bless those who bless you, those who curse you, I'll curse, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So he made this promise of blessing, not just for his people, but everybody on earth. And Abraham probably didn't know what fully that meant yet, but he knew that he was going to have a large following and nation and family. And none of that had happened for a long time. You can read the rest of Genesis between chapter 12 and 22, but he finally did give birth to a son from his wife. He finally gave birth to Isaac. Isaac was his prized possession because he was his only son. All the weight of the promises of God rested on the shoulders of Isaac. So Genesis 22. If you know your Bible very well, that's a really tough passage. If you have heard this taught, it's a tough passage. In Genesis 22, God goes to Abraham and says, Take your son, the one whom you've loved, take him up to the top of the mountain, and sacrifice him for me. Right? So it's hard because a couple things. One, never in the Bible does God condone human sacrifices. He actually judges nations that do that because all people are made in his image. So the question remains, why is God asking this? It's a tough passage to teach through. And here's one thing we know. We know that fundamentally Abraham didn't believe his son was going anywhere. And, and we see that in, in verse 5 of that passage. He says to his servants, you two stay here with the donkey. Me and my son will go up uh, there. Me and the boy will go up there while we worship, and we, we will return to you. So he knows he's coming back with his son. I don't think Abraham had any question of what God was going to do, or that God could deliver him. And, and we see that even in, in Hebrews. So in Hebrews 11, a New Testament book, it speaks back to the Old Testament story of Abraham. And it says in verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac will your offspring be named. Verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. So I think Abraham knew that God would either provide or raise his son from the dead. Abraham didn't have a doubt that God was good enough, big enough to, to follow through with his promises. So when we teach that passage, sometimes we stop there and say in moments of unknownness, we need to trust that God will provide. And that's true. But what Jesus does is unlock what was happening in that moment. What Jesus does is talk about the provision of God. So the rest of that story is Abraham finds a ram that's stuck in a thicket and he slaughters the ram and he calls God a name that basically means God will provide because they would call God different names based on his attributes throughout the Old Testament. And so he says that mountain is called God will provide. And it actually says in the text that they use that name, that the people from that day forward called that mountain, Mount Moriah, God will provide. 
A few thousand years later, Jesus carried his cross like Isaac carried the worship sacrifice, the elements. He carried his cross up that mountain and provided for us. Right about on Mount Moriah where Isaac laid and Abraham was called to sacrifice his son. And for years, the Israelite people said, that's the mountain where God will provide. They just didn't understand what it fully meant yet. Jesus said it meant me. Looking at it forward doesn't always make sense, but when we see it looking backward, we see the, the beauty of God's plan and the promised reality of Jesus. It's all throughout the Old Testament, not just in Leviticus and not just in Genesis. We see one of the better examples of it in, in Psalms 22. When Jesus is on the cross, he, he quotes Psalm 22, that, that phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. And actually, there are three or four key moments in Psalm 22 that, that are predicted, they're prophesied about, that come true at the crucifixion of Jesus, like they're going to pierce his hands and feet, and they're going to gamble for his clothes. And so Jesus quotes Psalm 22, knowing that every good Jewish boy would know that whole psalm. Not just, God, why have you forsaken me? But listen to how Psalm 22 ends. It says in verse 27, God, may you live forever. Let all the people of the earth acknowledge the Lord and turn to him. Let the nations worship you. It ends by saying a whole generation will serve God. They will tell the next generation about the Lord. They will come and tell about his saving deeds. They will tell a future generation what he has accomplished. What Jesus is doing on the cross is he's showing all along that the plan of God is going to plan and that what didn't make sense makes sense when you look at it through the lens of Jesus. He's a witness to the perfection of the plan of salvation. And that's what he's talking about in verse 27 when he says, I'm going to start with Moses and the prophets, and I'm going to walk you through how this pointed to me. And you missed it, because you weren't looking for a suffering servant. All these stories that you didn't know what they meant or why they were there, let me tell you what they were and why they were. They all pointed to me. And that's why we study the Old Testament a lot, Leviticus, and um, we've done Proverbs, and we've done Psalms, and, and man, I love the Old Testament because I think it fills out our knowledge of God. It shows us that God has always been in control. I love what um, Aslan, Aslan tells Lucy in the Chronicles of Narnia. He says, every year you grow, you will find me bigger. <laughs> so we can't like outgrow our knowledge of God or outgrow our, our understanding of the depth and the goodness of God or outgrow our ability to keep learning about Jesus as it's always been revealed in the Old Testament. That's why we study it. One writer said, the truth of the gospel does not simply correspond or confirm to reality it transforms and reframes reality. That's what's happening with these guys. And so he unpacks the entire Old Testament. That must have been a really slow seven-mile walk. And it gets done, and in verse 29, he says, hey, they say, hey, stay with us. Jesus implies he's going to walk farther. They still don't know it's him. He says, stay with us because it's getting toward evening, and the day is almost done. So Jesus went inside to stay with them. They started eating a meal in verse 30. It says, when he had taken his place at the table with them, this is Jesus, he took the bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to him. In verse 31, at this point, their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus. That, that phrase there, to open, occurs six times in, in Luke and Acts. And, and every time it does, every single time it does, it's all with reference to divine revelation. Five of them are in reference to specifically divine revelation that comes from the scriptures. 
So what Jesus is doing is showing them the divine revelation that's in the scriptures. And this is the moment, this is the moment where they recognized it was God. This is the moment that stuck true to them, where they started seeing what they believed and what they believed change. Now they believed that a man could rise from the dead. They believed what the Old Testament had been saying all along, that all these stories pointed to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. What a moment that would have been for these people. And look what it does for them. Verse 34 and 35. So from there they found the eleven, the other disciples, and they gathered together and they said, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They told what had happened on the road and how they recognized him when he broke the bed, the bread. Here, here's what's happening for the two people on the road. All those stories that they thought they knew they didn't really know. And looking backwards through the lens of Jesus, they see the beauty of the gospel. They see the beauty of the resurrection, and it gives new meaning and new life to the stories they thought they knew. It really is true what Kierkegaard says about life being lived forward but understood backwards. And, and what I love about this text is how it relates to you and me. Because you might be saying, I'm not walking to Emmaus, and, and I, I get some of the stories of the Old Testament, so how does this apply to our here and our now, to the middle of our unknownness, like it did to their unknownness, the story that they probably wouldn't have written. Um, I, I think it does in several different ways. I think Colossians says it really well. So in Colossians 1, Paul is talking about the supremacy of Christ, the beauty of Jesus, and what the gospel is. And he says to them in verse 27, God wanted to make known to them, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, God wanted to make known to them the glorious riches of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then he charges them to take that message to people. N.T. Wright says, we need to listen for the hidden stranger on the road who will explain to us how it was that these great things had to happen, and how it is that there's a whole new world out there waiting to be born, for which we are called to be midwives. How does this story speak in our unwritten stories? I think when we look at our current moment, back through the lens of Jesus, what we see are gospel stories unfolding all around us. We see the presence of a resurrected Jesus, and it gives a why to our what. Every time we live with peace, and grace, and love, and patience, we do it because Jesus is here. What, what this moment does, what the presence of God does, is literally it takes all of our little stories that we don't understand the meaning to, or maybe don't think have meaning, he takes those stories and redirects them as they point towards his story of restoration. It's the beauty of the presence of God in our day-to-day. So there's no little moments. There's no little stories. There's just the ones that point towards Jesus. That's the call for the Christians, even if we don't understand what's going on or why things are happening the way they're happening. There's a book that I love. I've referenced it before. It's called Liturgy of the Ordinary by Tish Harrison Warren. And she's got a couple quotes that I really love. One's about friendships. She said, Christian friendships are call and response friendships. We tell each other over and over, back and forth, the truth of who we are and who God is over dinner and on walks, dropping off soup when someone is sick, and in prayer over the phone, we speak the good news to each other, and we become good news to every other. She goes on to say, there is no task too small or too routine to reflect God's glory and worth. So what does 
story of the road to Emmaus tell me? One, it gives me confidence as I read through the scriptures that it all points to Jesus. And two, in the middle of, of my unwritten stories yet, in the middle of my unknown, in the middle of times when, when uncertainty is the new certainty, I know that God's telling the story of his gospel because I know the end of it. I know that in the end, all of the ways that we show love and kindness and goodness in these moments, we do so because Jesus. <laughs> we do so because of the resurrection. We do so because the presence of God goes before us to point to a new reality. There is life and it's found when we follow Jesus. So that's a, a take on the road to Emmaus. And it's one of my favorite stories because it reminds me of the beauty of the everyday. It reminds me um, that all of our stories hopefully point to the bigger message of who Jesus is and how he came to save. And I need that in the middle of the unknown <laughs> because I need to know what's true when everything else seems like I can't grab onto it. So this morning, as you read through that story, you'll see some panel discussions below and we have some more worship for you. Uh, but let me pray for us as we keep going and worshiping today. God, I'm thankful. <laughs> I'm thankful that you're in control. That we can see that you've always been in control from the Old Testament into the New Testament. I'm thankful that as we get to live out the story of the gospel in little ways in our day-to-day, -day, it points to the bigger story of what Jesus has done. That you've called us to show people Christ, the hope of glory through how we live. May we be those people that show the goodness of God and handshakes and hugs and the way that we love those around us. May they see the ultimate story through our interactions in the day-to-day. -day. So give us a boldness to proclaim that with our words and our actions. Give us wisdom as we look for places to step in and, and be the hands and feet of Jesus. And help us to love each other and live with grace through times of uncertainty. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Thanks everybody for joining us today. The panel discussions below. Have a fantastic day.